suicide itself actually has a lot of stigma still around it. But of course, with murder-suicide, there's that extra component of murder that makes it more complex <laughs> and difficult. Everybody feels like they have the right to or should weigh in with their comments and their judgments and their thoughts about why the situation happened without actually knowing the people involved or what the situation is. They're just going by the headlines. Welcome to Let's Not Talk About It. This is a podcast that does talk about it. We're going to unshush, take the lid off and get rid of the stigma around the trauma that currently keeps so many of us silenced. And to do that, we'll share stories from ordinary people overcoming extraordinary struggles. I'm Camille Tudy. I'm Sharon Tiger. And I'm Amanda Ziede. And we are your hosts. Hi, Camille and Amanda. So our next guest is going to be talking about her experience with murder-suicide. And when I went to do some research on my own about it, there was very little out there. And I think that's something to discuss. But one of the other pieces of our next guest's story is around generational trauma. And I was able to find some really interesting information about that. And one of the studies was where they took male adult mice, and they pumped the scent of cherry blossom into their cage. And every time they pumped the scent into the cage, they would shock their foot. And so the offspring from these mice later, when they smelt the scent of cherry blossom, anxiety, cortisol levels, all these things went up, even without ever being shocked or having had that specific experience themselves. So I think it really speaks to generational trauma. And that is a piece to our next guest story. So I would love to just get your thoughts around that. Have you all read anything about that? Because I think one of the misconceptions around murder-suicide research is that they're like violent, wild people. And it only happens to people who are very violent when listening to Sarah's story, not the case. What do you think about generational trauma and what do you think we can do to bring about more research on murder-suicide? I think generational trauma is not talked about enough, but I think it's more prominent than we even know. I think our family or our parents and their parents and their parents' trauma, I think it absolutely impacts us and how we grow up and the way that we think and the things that cause us anxiety and cause us stress. I just think that we attribute it to just being life, but I think there's actually reasons why certain things stresses us out the way that they do. We talked about it a bit last season with Suleiman. I thought that was really interesting. Her father who was captured and held hostage and she internalized his trauma and it impacted the decisions she made in her life. So I think that absolutely happens. I don't know enough in terms of research and statistics. I don't know if we even do as a society know enough about how generational trauma impacts us, but I would love to see more about that topic because I think that there could be some in my family, but I just don't even know how to begin exploring that. Well, I'm so glad you reminded me of Suleme because also part of this article was offspring of prisoners of war. And basically what they were saying is that it doesn't change your actual DNA, but it turns components of your genes on or off to react differently. And so studies show that even the children of prisoners of war, there's parts of it that were altered because there's some sort of memory there. Yeah, and with the number of veterans in our country, so many people serve. There has to be some way that this is impacting their children just from the trauma they've experienced. So 
I think it's a really interesting topic. I'd love to learn more about generational trauma. It's really fascinating that research on the mice and the cherry blossom. And we've talked about with Dr. Botten how trauma can change your brain pretty much. So it's not strange that those changes would carry on to your offspring, your children. In terms of what we can do to bring more research around this, I think we have to talk about it more. We have to talk about generational trauma. I think most people don't even know what it is. I have to admit, a few years ago when I heard a term, I was like, that's bullshit. <laughs> I actually thought that. I was like, there is no way that trauma can be passed on generationally. But then when I actually read about it and talked with people, I understood that that is absolutely the case. And I think we've discussed on the show before the children of Holocaust survivors, what kind of trauma, what kind of psychological issues and mental health issues they had. So, yeah, talking about it more. I hope that there will be a lot more research into it because then we can truly see like okay, how can we break the cycle of generational trauma, right? If a family is going through something, how can we prevent that from happening to the next generation? And for murder-suicide, wow, what a stigmatized and misunderstood topic. When I was doing my research into it, like our next guest will tell us, there is really not a whole lot of information out there you see these headlines that are so sensationalized. It's murder, it's suicide, and it, now it happens at once. It's such a unique event or unique tragedy. It really draws the attention of the reader. So I think that we have to look beyond the headlines and see the human impact of it all. We'll have two sides that are suffering horribly the perpetrator and the actual victim's families or loved one. That I think would be so interesting to be able to break the cycle, like to learn how to break the cycle. What a game changer that would be. And then you mentioned bullshit. I'll tell you what would be complete bullshit. If someone ruined my sense of smell like that, if I smelled cherry blossom, that lovely <laughs> scent and got all jacked up from it, I'd be pissed. <laughs> With that said, let's get to our next guest. Sarah Cobb, unfortunately, is no stranger to death and grief. The youngest of three, she had two older brothers whose lives both ended tragically. Before she was born, her oldest brother died as a child when he climbed up a power line he mistook for a tree. He was electrocuted while her younger brother helplessly watched. And though Sarah was close with her remaining brother growing up, he was never the same after what he had witnessed. Sarah's brother struggled in life. Years later, as an adult, Sarah received a call that her one surviving brother was found dead in an apartment with his fiance in a murder-suicide. This unimaginable tragedy led Sarah to continuously learn about grief counseling, mental health, and trauma in order to help others. She formed the first ever support group for murder-suicide survivors and runs the website My Grief Connection. Stick around. After our conversation with Sarah, we'll be talking with licensed psychotherapist Dr. Botten, who will give her expert insight and advice. And now, here's our chat with Sarah. Sarah, for years you worked in the library. Recently, you're taking on more counseling positions following a life crisis that happened three years ago. 
And you've since built a community focused on grief management after losing a brother. But that wasn't the first sibling that you had lost. Can you talk about what happened to your family while living in Korea before you were even born? Yeah, it was pretty much, I guess, born into a grieving family, you could say. My oldest brother, Stephen, died in an accidental electrocution when he was just a month or so shy of seven years old. And that was witnessed by my other older brother, Skylar, who was about four at the time. So I never got to meet Stevie. I was born 11 months after he died. My family really had to go through this acute grieving process while expecting my birth. It was a very traumatizing experience. Stephen and Skylar were actually playing outside in a wooded area behind the missionary homes. They were playing frontiersmen. Stevie loved Daniel Boone, and so he had on his coonskin cap and his little toy rifle, and they were just sitting around, and Stevie ended up climbing up an electrical transformer pole, and the gun got too close to a low-slung wire, and it caused a big electrical explosion, and about 30,000 volts of electricity shot through his old body and burned all his clothes and hair off. And so Skylar witnessed this at four. And then my parents heard this big boom and knew something was wrong and came running and thought he was gone. They called the electrical company. They came out and got him down, but realized that he was actually still alive. They were able to get him into my dad's arms and they raced in a Jeep to a clinic across the street and got him some attention. They transferred him to a bigger hospital and he survived about 33 hours, but he could not live with the intensity of the damage that was done to his little body. And so he did pass away. He was conscious off and on during that time and was able to speak with my parents and they were able to pray and sing songs and get to say some goodbyes to him. So they were very grateful that they had the opportunity to have those moments with him before he left the earth. But yeah, it was a very horrible, traumatizing experience for the whole family. Wow. Yeah. And you said you were born 11 months after? Yeah. How did this tragedy impact your childhood growing up and your family's dynamic? I think it did really have a big influence on our whole family dynamic. It shaped that. How could it not? It was just so like a foundational sort of thing, at least in my life, being born in the aftermath of such a tragedy. I know that my parents were really happy to have me and wanted another child. They had wanted a child before I came along and before Stevie died. But I think with the loss of him, that just really solidified that they wanted to have more children. And I think for them, it was a healing thing to have another child in the family. Did you feel this trauma in Skylar growing up? How did the tragedy impact him and change him growing up together? I know that it had a very profound effect on Skylar. He was very close with Stevie and he just really idealized his older brother and wanted to do everything that he did and wanted to be like him. And I think that Skylar had a lot of survivor's guilt about not being the one that died that day. I don't know exactly what happened. I don't know if it was Skylar's idea to go climb on this thing and Stevie did it first or Stevie made the suggestion or if Skylar was about to climb up the tower after him and didn't. We don't know exactly what happened there and how he interpreted what happened and what that meant about his responsibility in the situation. So it's hard to say exactly, but I do feel like he did have a lot of guilt and wished, of course, that things could have been different and sometimes probably wished that it was him instead of Stevie. And that's a really hard burden for a kid to carry for all those years. And I think it really weighed on him as time went on. I think that he repressed a lot of his grief and 
his sadness and his anger and his guilt. And that caused a lot of damage over the years. And yeah, so it impacted him probably in a lot of ways. And I know as a teenager, he really struggled as a lot of teenagers do. And he really butt heads with my parents, especially my dad and got into some trouble and was somewhat rebellious and became very much an adrenaline junkie, always trying to maybe numb some of the pain that he had. So he would do things that were somewhat reckless to sort of get that hit. He needed adrenaline to feel something and to feel better. And I know that he experimented some with alcohol and drugs as a teenager and that too, which, you know, affects the brain <laughs> as you're growing. And then to have it be a traumatized brain already and then be altering it with substances and with the adrenaline and all of that. You mentioned survivor's guilt. How mm -hmm. did your parents deal with the death of Stevie, because losing one's child must be one of the most horrific things you can experience as a parent. So how did all this affect them? Of course, it was devastating to lose their son. But I think because of maybe the time frame, the mid-70s, they didn't have really a lot of access to mental health services, to counseling, to trauma treatment, or anything like that. So they pretty much just had to rely on their own instincts and what others were doing at that time period, which was pretty much just suck it up and keep going, get back to work as soon as possible, I'm sure that they talked a lot with each other about it and within the family. And they had a few close friends that they could talk to and that were supportive. But I don't really know that they got a whole lot of treatment or anything to deal with the grief. I know that they both enjoy writing. And so I think that they did some journaling and things like that, which were probably helpful for them. The trauma and the tragedy, though, manifested in Skylar mentally, right? He experienced bipolar 2 disorder later growing up. How did this impact him as a young adult into his adult life? I think that the trauma that Skylar endured as a young child really followed him throughout his life and compounded through some other experiences that he had. He actually, because of his need for that adrenaline surge, would seek out risky behaviors and experiences. So he actually was in a pretty bad motorcycle accident as a teenager and also a fairly bad rollover car accident that he almost died twice because of those things. And he would act fairly impulsively. And part of that was just being a teenager. So it's hard to suss out what was him just being a teenager that was angsty and what was mental health struggles or his trauma being triggered that he was dealing with. So it's hard for me to say, I just sort of be speculating, but I know that around like the age of 16, he was really, really having a hard time with those issues. He moved out of the house pretty young, right around that age and got an apartment with friends and he'd get into some trouble. He got into a little bit of trouble with the law. I won't go into it like super detail about it, but he did spend a couple of years in a facility because of something that he did that was an impulsive action and nobody was hurt, but he did have to pay the consequences for his actions. That itself was very traumatizing to him. And he had some pretty horrible experiences there. And I know that he ended up getting a pretty bad concussion and skull fracture from being punched by another inmate. And so I think that on top 
of what he was already dealing with didn't help, but he did get through that really rough period and really actually turned his life around. When he was about 18, he really decided that he didn't want to go down the path that he was headed and started making a lot better choices and got his GED and went on to college, ended up being student body president at university, being very active in crew, getting into bicycling and other sports, healthier outlets for his need for speed, I guess, or that need for excitement. He really got much better balance and control, I think, of his health in general and his mental health. But he had some ups and downs over the years, and he had times when he really did struggle with his mental health. And I think when he wasn't taking really good care of himself, things would get harder. What made him seek out a doctor or a mental health professional? Did he feel like he was dealing with something that he couldn't deal with on his own? I don't really know the answer to that question, honestly. We didn't have like super in-depth conversations about his mental health that I can recall. Like, I don't remember when he actually was diagnosed or anything like that. I know he was diagnosed with bipolar 2 disorder, but I don't know the details on when exactly that happened or what was the incident that encouraged him to seek out more help. I know he had a few pretty intense incidents over the years where it was obvious that his mental health was not doing well, but I couldn't tell you which one exactly or when that was. You mentioned in the beginning that there was you know, a tragedy that happened just a few years ago, and I know this might be difficult to share, so please take your time if you need to, but what happened with Skylar when you received a horrible phone call? I was at work one day, it was the 5th of July, 2018, and it's just normal day, you know, at work. And I got a phone call from my dad that afternoon telling me that he didn't want to have to tell me this over the phone, but he was with the police and they had found Skylar and his fiance's bodies at their home and that they were both gone. He said that I don't know many details, but there was a gun involved and they're both dead. Needless to say, I was absolutely just floored, completely shocked and horrified and devastated to learn that news. And it was pretty difficult to be in the middle of my workplace with all my coworkers around me, hearing me cry and try to process that news. It was horrifying. Just not something that we would have ever expected. We know that he struggled with his mental health over the years and that he had had a couple of incidents where he had attempted suicide in the past, but it had been a long time since one of those incidents had happened. And as far as we knew, he was doing really well and relatively stable and on medication and seeing a psychiatrist and doing all of the things. He was really working hard to be healthy and to get in a good place with his mental health. So it seemed very much out of the blue when it happened and very shocking. And I had talked to him on the 4th and it was a normal conversation, nothing out of the ordinary. And I know his former wife had talked to him that day and he had actually like sent in a job application on the 4th and just living normal life. And we were just really shocked that something had happened that changed all that in an instant and they were gone. Was it known immediately that it was a murder-suicide or did it take time to process? We weren't totally sure right away, but it seemed that the evidence was pointing in that direction pretty early on. Hoped and wished that it was not that, <laughs> that something else had happened, that Maybe someone had broken or someone tried to make it look like it was that. Just all those things that your mind tries to do because it just can't really wrap around the reality of what's going on. How did you and your family cope afterwards? Were there certain resources or ways in which you remember the first steps you took to try to process and heal from this? 
we just really tried to be there for each other as much as we could and tried to talk with each other about what happened so that we could process it and come to some sort of understanding and and acceptance of what happened. We all dealt with it a little differently. So I can't really speak for everybody in the family. We all have our different paths to work through the grief, but I know for me, I'm a doer. So I wanted to help in any way I could. So I definitely did quite a bit of helping with going through my brother's things and getting his house cleaned out and ready to sell. And I helped a lot with his digital life, working through photos and putting together the video for the memorial. I also did the video for his fiance's memorial as well. And just having some things to do to kind of keep busy, to feel like I was helping in some way or being somewhat productive. For me, that was helpful. And I'm just such a book person and a reader that I wanted to read like every book I could find on grief and loss and on suicide and murder-suicide and all those things for me. I need to understand. That's one way I cope is just trying to get more information and trying to understand and kind of work it through in my head and work the puzzle out and try to figure out what happened, piece things together, puzzle it together. So I have an investigative mind. I was trying to gather all the clues and put it together and figure out like, how could this happen? And why did this happen? What were all the steps that happened to lead to this? So that was a lot of my early coping was just working mentally to sift through all of the details and try to figure out why and how this happened. Because it just didn't fit with what I thought I knew of my brother or who he was, how I knew him. This kind of violence didn't really fit with what I knew of him and his heart and who he was. I was trying to figure out if I knew him like I thought I did. <laughs> And so that was a lot of my early coping. And then I realized pretty early that I wanted some professional help that I needed to talk to someone, to give me some perspective and to give me some tools to help with this. Because I had never experienced this type of loss before. I've had some grief in my life. I've lost some important people in my family, but no one that I was as close to as my brother. And so I didn't really know if what I was going through was normal, if the things I was experiencing were, were okay. So no one really expects to be investigating or researching murder-suicide. And you mentioned also you were reading up on grief. What were some of the most helpful things that you learned about both murder-suicide and grief that helped you move towards the path of healing? I think what was really helpful for me in researching and reading about grief was just how unique grief is and how grief is kind of like a fingerprint. We all experience it differently and it's all okay. There's no real timeline for grief. There's not really rules to it, even though people like to put it <laughs> in boxes and think there are stages and steps you have to go through. But really I've learned that that's not true. There are frameworks that can be helpful as you work through grief to process it to consider and think about. And certainly there are similar feelings and experiences that we have universally when we experience a big grief. But really for me, just really understanding that like my grief is my grief and it's unique and that's okay. And whatever I'm experiencing, however I need to process it is normal and okay. And that really helped a lot. There's really not that much at all about murder-suicide out there written, so I really struggled to find any resources for murder-suicide loss. I did find one article early on. Actually, my younger brother found an article that was written by two brothers who had lost their brother 
in a murder-suicide like 20-something years before, and they were reflecting back a little bit on that experience and what that was like, and that was helpful just knowing that we weren't alone in this experience and that other people have gone through this and that they survived and that they got through it. And that was probably the most helpful thing is just knowing that there are other people out there that have been through this and that it's survivable. One of the things that we ask on this podcast is the unexpected gifts we get from trauma. So you ended up founding a support group for murder-suicide survivors. I'm curious to know when you wanted to do more, because you said earlier on that you're the one who's a doer, you're the Mm -hmm. helper. So how did you decide that you wanted to launch a support group? I had no idea when I lost Skylar that I would be at some point in the future trying to help other grievers and other survivors of murder-suicide loss. I had no ambition to do that necessarily in the beginning. I was just trying to survive. (laughs) And I got into counseling and thankfully had a great counselor that helped me a lot. And it was about three weeks before the one-year anniversary of my loss that I was talking with her. And I was telling her how frustrated I was that grief resources were spread all over the internet and you would have to spend hours just like scouring the websites trying to find those things that were helpful for you and that you needed. And I'm good at research because I did that for so long working in a library and I enjoy the hunt. (laughs) She told me, yeah, you're right. It's really difficult to find and it's all over the place, but maybe that's something that you could try to find a solution for. And I thought about it. And initially I was like, well, that's not fair. This should already exist, but it didn't. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized, yeah, she's right. So I spent six hours in a cafe on the 4th of July, just pounding away on my computer, Googling and YouTubing. And by the end of that six hours, I had something, I had a couple of pages, I had some links and I hit publish. And so that's how I started my grief connection. And then it snowballed from there and I just kept adding more and more to the website. And then I was asked to speak at a suicide prevention walk that fall. That was my first time really telling my story publicly, saying out loud the words murder, suicide, and my brother's name together. It was very difficult, but I realized after that experience and the feedback I got that my story could help other people. So I kept talking, (laughs) I kept sharing, I kept adding to the website. And then a year later, I was asked to speak at another event, and I was really struggling with figuring out, trying to streamline, how do I tell this story? So I did one last Google search for murder-suicide loss survivors or murder-suicide loss support. And normally, when I search for those terms, I just find the headlines. I don't find anything helpful. And that day, I happened to find an article that popped up at the top, and I was like, what's this? I hadn't seen this before. And it was from another survivor who lost her dad and stepmom in a murder-suicide about six months before Skylar died. And I was just like, oh my gosh, yes, somebody else is talking about this. And I reached out to her eventually, and we connected, and we ended up having a Zoom call. And it was the first time either one of us had actually really talked to another survivor outside of our own circle of survivors and her family. And we were both like, This is amazing. (laughs) It was such a relief to have someone else to talk about it with that understood and and that could get it. And as we got to know each other a little bit and continued to stay in touch, realized that, you know, she had a few people reaching out to her from her article that were like me trying to find someone else's story. And then I had a few people that saw the speech that I did at the walk and they reached out to me 
And we were like, we need to get five or six of us on a call and have a little support group meeting kind of thing. Saying that sort of joking, like we need to make our own little support group. And then I was like, oh yeah, we do need to make our own support group. Why don't we just form a support group? So it's kind of gone from there. We've been meeting since last November, November of 2020. And we meet every two weeks on a Friday night and just talk for about an hour and a half or two hours and share our stories and we keep growing. We keep getting new members, which is, it's great, but at the same time, heartbreaking every time we have a new member because we know someone else has gone through this horrible experience as well. But we're so glad that we exist because there's a place now for people to go to have these conversations and to get support. So it's been an amazing experience and the thing I'm most proud of. That's amazing that you're able to help, especially when you were looking for these types of resources and weren't able to find them for yourself. So turning it around and providing that for others. And I'm going to draw a connection, but you're pursuing your master's degree in psychology. Is that right? Um, counseling. Yeah. Counseling. Okay. Master's in counseling. Does that stem from you wanting to know more about why what happened to Skylar happened to Skylar and or your pursuit in finding a support group that could help you specifically in what you were grieving? Yes, all of those. <laughs> yeah, it stems from the experience that I've had in counseling and how much it's helped me with my grief, but also just in general with life. Once you get into counseling and start feeling the proverbial, you start to realize, oh yeah, I've got some other things I need to work on too. Counseling has been really helpful in so many ways. And my relationship with my counselor has been really a pivotal one in my life. So I really would like to be able to maybe help others in a way that I've been helped. I really enjoy the group experience that I've gone through, both in a suicide loss support group that I'm a part of, and then also in this murder-suicide loss group that I help facilitate. And I can see the healing power of the group experience and sharing with others and how that helps so much with healing the shame that's attached with these situations. The more I talk about it, the less shame I feel. And the easier it is to talk about, <laughs> it's not always easy necessarily, but it's easier. <laughs> and I know that it's important to talk about. So even though it's sometimes painful or challenging, it's worth it because I know that it helps other people when I talk about it. So yeah, I would like to learn more about facilitating groups and how that can be helpful. And so that's part of the reason why I want to study counseling. You mentioned shame the shame that comes with trauma, and you mentioned stigma. What have you experienced as the biggest stigma around murder-suicide? Murder-suicide is so different than suicide. Suicide itself actually has a lot of stigma still around it, but of course with murder-suicide, there's that extra component of murder that makes it more complex <laughs> and difficult Everybody feels like they have the right to or should weigh in with their comments and their judgments and their thoughts about why the situation happened without actually knowing the people involved or what the situation is. They're just going by the headlines and what the media reports. And so I feel like with murder-suicide, a lot of the time there's this label of domestic violence and abuse that's automatically attached to it. And it's not always the case that these situations are typical abusive relationships. They often are. I'm not saying they're not, but it's not always the case. And I think people immediately jump to judgments and think they know what happened and think they know who the perpetrator was and why they did what they did and who the victim was and 
why they stayed or why they didn't leave, you know, like all these things, they very quickly form their opinion about what happened and like to jump in and make comments about that. And those things can be very, very hurtful to those left behind on both sides. It's just not necessary really for the media to portray these situations in the way that they do and they often will keep bringing them back up when there's another case that happens they like to bring back oh and last year this happened in the same town with this person and so then the family has to go through reliving that experience again publicly and it's just really really difficult there's a real lack of empathy out there about these scenarios and about what's happened and a lot of judgment I didn't realize before it happened to me how pervasive it was. And I know that I'm guilty of making those type of judgments and assumptions about people when I've heard these stories in the past. And now I see them differently and I feel differently when I read about these and I have so much more compassion for all of the the players involved and especially for the survivors, the families that are left to deal with the heartbreak of what's happened and try to figure out how to go on with their lives. Probably most often the survivors knew and or loved both people involved, the perpetrator and the victim or multiple victims sometimes. So they don't realize how complex this is for the survivors and how much they have to process and work through because of the connection usually to both sides and how much of a struggle that is for me and just really Going through this experience has made me so much more empathetic and compassionate for all parties involved in these kind of scenarios. And I hope that telling my story allows others to build some of that empathy and compassion as well. Sarah, you mentioned two sides. So there are two families involved with a murder-suicide. So how did you and your family deal with the complexities of the fiancé's family and knowing that they too had lost someone in this instance. Yeah, it's so surreal to lose two people at the same time, especially in this really dramatic, violent, unthinkable way. So we were just extremely heartbroken for her family and felt a lot of guilt, really. You know, like we wish there was some more that we could have done to prevent the situation or that we could have known that something was wrong and intervened somehow or whatever. And there really weren't any signs, at least not anything that was obvious to us. And obviously we would have if we had known, but it's really difficult when it's your person that is the perpetrator because you feel this guilt by association where you feel like you should have known. You should have known something was wrong. You should have done something. You could have done more. Why didn't you do more? Why didn't your spidey sense kick in and somehow magically make you be able to sense what was happening or what was about to happen so that you could intervene? And obviously that's just not possible, but it's hard not to have that burden, that feeling with you. So we definitely felt a lot of guilt by association and we felt horrible that this happened and wished it would have turned out any other way. We would much rather have had this just been a suicide than a murder-suicide, even though that would have been devastating too. We were really lucky that her family, especially her mother, has been nothing but kind to us this whole time. That's a true blessing. I cannot even put myself in the situation of either family. So being able to receive and give kindness in that kind of situation is just amazing. Yeah. 
it is. She's just a wonderful person. And she is also a very faith-based person. And so I think that's helped a lot. We have a similar faith and she's been through some big griefs in her life. And she knows that we have as well. So I think that we have this kind of empathy for each other and this compassion for each other. And that's helped a lot. We speak with her pretty regularly and check in. I was really honored to be able to do the video tribute for her funeral. So I worked with her mom and got all the pictures and put it all together and everything. And so that was something that was helpful and healing for both of us to work on that together. Her family was part of our family. We spent Christmases and Mother's Days and birthdays and things like that together pretty often over the two or three years that they were together. And we just really enjoyed their family and had a lot of affection for them and still do. And so thankfully, I think we had some bonding there that had happened before this experience. And so that helped. Something interesting that you brought up that I think you mentioned earlier too was this stigma that people have around those who are experiencing loss due to a suicide is that there were signs or you must have known or what you said, the spidey sense that you knew something was going to happen. I think it's important to note that that's not the case oftentimes. And it's something that you see on social media a lot too, when something happens. So how did the parents or the family not know? I mean, it's something that I think we should rid as well. And it's important to note here too, like you mentioned, it can create perhaps bad feelings in these situations where it's not needed. Yeah. And I think in this particular case with my brother, there really weren't any signs because this was a very impulsive thing that he did because of the way that his bipolar was affecting him. I think what happened, and I'm just speculating to some degree because we don't know exactly all of the details of everything that happened that day. I know that earlier in the day, things seemed fine with him. I read their texts from that day and everything seemed normal. And I talked to him and his former wife talked to him that day. Everything seemed fine. And then they went out together to celebrate the 4th of July. They went out to have drinks at a bar and play pool and just had a good time. And something happened when they were out. We think that they got into a fight and broke up or there was a threat of a breakup or something like that. And there was a cascade of events that happened on top of just a lot of chronic stress and some issues in their relationship, some tension and things like that happened. And then it's the holiday. So everything sort of heightened, you know, and they were definitely both drinking too much alcohol that day. And he was on a medication where he probably shouldn't have been drinking alcohol. And then there's this really big emotional thing that happens between them and In his mind, I think he just felt like his world was falling apart and crumbling and he was losing the woman that he loved most, the most important relationship to him. I just think that it was like this perfect storm of things that sort of brewed that day. And when you have a mental illness like bipolar, sometimes just in the snap of a finger, like in just a moment, you could be in this hypomanic state where you can't control like you normally would, you know, you don't have that logical sort of thinking going on and your impulse takes over and all the emotion that was bubbling up came out at once. And he was just very impulsive and did this thing and realized what he did and realized he couldn't undo it and he couldn't live without her and he couldn't live with the shame of what he'd done and face all of the consequences and put the families through what all that would mean. So it's understandable to me why He took his own life because of all of those kind of factors that come together. And so I know that it was not anything that he 
really premeditated or thought about it in advance. I think it just all happened in the moment. And there's really not a lot you can do to prevent those kind of scenarios from happening. At least those of us on the outside can't really do much to prevent those things from happening. So it's just tragic and it's heartbreaking and I wish it wouldn't have happened, but it's not undoable. You can't unshoot. <laughs> you can't unshoot someone. You can't. I know he wished that he could have turned back time when he realized what happened and he just couldn't. And that was too much to bear. That happens in a lot of these cases. I think the majority of them, people are just not in their right mind in that moment. They do something and then realize, I can't undo this. And so taking their own life is really the only option. Yeah, you don't know what people are going through from an outsider's perspective. The only thing we can do is listen and learn and share stories like yours and try to understand like you tried to do afterwards. Yeah, and I hope that my story can help other people. And I know not a lot of people are talking about murder-suicide. It's not really a glamorous topic. It's not really something that's fun to talk about. It's a club that nobody wants to be in. Nobody in our support group really wants to be in our support group. But we need to because we need each other and we need to hear each other's stories and we need to have our grief normalized and recognized and validated because it's very much a disenfranchised type of grief where... We often feel like we aren't allowed to grieve for our person because of what they did. There's this feeling that I think society likes to put on these, these kind of situations or on people that commit these sort of crimes. Is that Why are you grieving them? They did this horrible thing. But what he did in that final moment really doesn't define who he was as a person. He was a full whole person and he lived a good life, you know, and he worked hard to be a good person. He was generous and kind and loving and loyal and he was funny and he had this whole life <laughs> and he was complicated like everybody is. We're all messy and complicated. So he made mistakes, but he also did a lot of good and did a lot of things right in his life. And it's just sad that people judge him for the worst moment of his life. Well, I think a lot of people will resonate with your story. It's such a tragic story, but you really light up when you talk about helping people. So you pursuing a degree in counseling, I think it's the right path for you. I'm sure you know mm -hmm. that. And I can just see how people will really be touched by your story. And I think you can help a lot of people, degree or not. So thank you for creating a space for survivors and connecting with people. Like you said, it's a club nobody wants to be part of. Or right. <laughs> but yeah. we really appreciate it. And can you tell our listeners where they can find you if they need to? People can find me at my website, mygriefconnection.org. I'm also on Instagram at my underscore grief underscore connection and Facebook as well. Just my grief connection. They can reach out to me by email as well. My grief connection at outlook.com. I'm really passionate about helping people find the right resources. I love doing that. So I love to hear people's stories and if they are willing to share with me a little bit about what they're going through, I'm happy to help them put together a little list of resources curated for them. It's so important to get connected and into community and to surround yourself with people that are supportive and to find the grief resources that are right for you, that fit you, and that feel comfortable for your experience. And so I really love helping people connect with all of those things. 
So I invite everyone to come check it out. We so appreciate you sharing your story with us. And we hope that no one will need to seek you out. But we want at least listeners to know that there is a resource out there that they can use. So thank you again for sharing your story. We so appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you. Sarah's story is heartbreaking, but shows how this type of tragedy has two sides that suddenly have to deal with lifelong agonizing pain of losing a loved one. This type of big T trauma tends to be so rare, so it often gets sensationalized and stigmatized, which really doesn't help the victims' families when they're trying to make sense of it all. We're really thankful Sarah shared her personal story. Next, we'll talk with our expert who'll offer information and context around trauma. Our expert has never met Sarah, and this isn't meant to diagnose and treat, but to help us understand trauma better. Hello, Dr. Blatton. So glad to have you. Uh, Pleasure to be here. First, I want to start with how the courage, so much courage Sarah had to share her story about her brother. Dr. Blatton, there's so many misconceptions around murder and suicide. So many that you have something that's rarely talked about. And I'm wondering, what do we know about the psychology behind murder-suicide? Murder-suicide is something that is not talked about as much as it needs to be and researched. We don't know quite a bit about the topic, but what we do know is that murder-suicide is where you have an incident where there is a homicide and it's followed by the perpetrator's suicide within 24 hours to a week following that homicide. On average, there are 11 murder-suicides that occur per week. And that research was over 15 years ago that we had around the frequency. All we know is that it has increased since then, obviously, because of this research. But it counts for less than 5% of the homicides in the United States. And the majority of the perpetrators of this are male. Most of the victims are their girlfriend, wife, or intimate partner. We recognize that murder-suicides are so tragic in many ways for two families, those of the person that has been harmed and murdered, and then also the perpetrator's family goes through quite a bit following this tragedy. Yeah, I can imagine we heard from Sarah how isolating that can be, not knowing many people who had experienced it. And what she's doing now, I think, is really admirable how she's used as part of her healing journey is to reach out to others and connect and be able to talk about these things. You talked a little bit about who tends to be the victims and the perpetrators. Could you explain just a little more about survivor's guilt and how it may manifest What we know about survivor's guilt is that it occurs in relationship to a tragic or a traumatic event or a loss where a person survives an event that they were a part of, but did not succumb to that event as someone else may have. And it leads to feelings of guilt. We recognize that following that traumatic experience, there are several things that the brain and body goes through to try to make sense of it, to understand it 
to reconcile with the outcomes of that event. And sometimes one of those psychological processes that a person is going through is the guilt. The symptom of guilt is really a part of PTSD often, post-traumatic stress disorder that the person is going through. And they're again, trying to make sense of the event and their part in it. The what ifs are big questions that come up with survivor's guilt. Could I have done something different? How could I have shown up? Is there a way that I could have played in the instance that could have saved some of the persons or person that were involved in the tragedy? So quite a bit of grief the person is going through. Guilt is a key, key player in survivor's experiences. When you have so many unanswered questions and so many questions that you may never have the answers to, how can a therapist help with that? So one of the big pieces to post-traumatic stress disorder and then also the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder is to really work with the person in creating safety. Safety was a big element that was taken out of the tragedy or the incident they were part of. And so reestablishing that safety within a therapeutic space is the first order of business. Helping a person to know that they are safe, to talk about, to disclose, and to hopefully process some of the emotions following the incident is really important, as well as creating a safe space for them to talk about even the ways that they may not feel comfortable with their family or anyone involved in the incident as well. That's a really good point because when I think of Sarah, I think of her parents and you probably need someone like a therapist that you can talk openly and freely and not have to guard your true feelings to protect other people that you love and care for. I imagine that would be really difficult. Yeah, it's really, really important in giving them a space where they can begin the process of not ruminating on the event, the what ifs, the things that they could have done differently, but having a space to retell the story. Oftentimes that story is really trapped in a perspective where they could have done something or that they had more capacity in the situation than they did. And so retelling that story, creating a new narrative is the therapeutic process that they go through. It's really interesting. Could you also explain a bit more about impulse decisions and actions that are associated with bipolar disorder too? How exactly do those who live with bipolar disorder two work through some of those impulses? Well, first we want to make sure that everyone knows what bipolar disorder is. The main symptoms of bipolar disorder are an alternating episodes of high mood and low mood, right? So it is a mood disorder and individuals that have bipolar disorder have changes in energy levels, sleep patterns, their ability to focus, and it dramatically changes how they behave and how they work, how they relate to other people in relationships, and then also the aspect of life that they might be going through. Impulsivity is one of the symptoms or one of the key behavioral traits that we find in individuals with bipolar disorder. And it's a predisposition toward unplanned reactions without consideration of the consequences. And so it could be risky decision-making, a poor response to inhibition. There's something that happens in the rapid decision-making that is not connected to the process of delayed processing that most people will go through. 
And so that can be heightened by substance use, that can be heightened by other diagnosis that the person has. And then also we find that in these situations, a person that has impulsive reactivity could also be linked to previous risky behavior, such as suicidal acts or aggression. And so again, we don't want to create the scenario that every person with bipolar disorder has impulsivity to the degree that they may harm another person or impulsivity to the degree that it actually impacts other people significantly at all. But along the range of impulsivity, sometimes there are instances where those actions, unplanned decision-making results in harmful, harmful behavior for that person and those around them. I'm really glad that you pointed that out because like everything, if nothing is black and white, there's so many shades of gray. So I know we talked a little bit about how a therapist can help someone work through murder-suicide, but how does counseling or therapy maybe help them understand or cope with things that happened Things like bad feelings that are between the two sides, because as you mentioned earlier, it's not one person that's impacted. You've got two families, two groups of friends that are impacted. How do they deal with some of the bad feelings that could be developing? First to note that it is devastating, right? Losing a family member to homicide is categorically devastating to the family unit in general. It changes the fabric of the family, the DNA of the unit forever. And so therapy can help deal with the shock, the turmoil, searching for answers, understanding through the tragedy, the guilt that arises as a result of, again, being the survivor, and then also not knowing how you might have been able to impact the outcome or towards a different outcome. Therapy can help deal with the anger associated with losing a family member, not to natural causes. That's a significant thing. It was not a natural cause. That person was taken from you. And so therapy can help make sense of the senseless, as well as deal with some of the revenge feelings, which are extremely common. The idea of wanting to have some type of justice or a payback can be a part of the process. When we think about both sides, the family members of the perpetrator have a unique sense of guilt that can enmesh with their grief process that can even delay it. So there's a guilt around even feeling loss surrounding their family member when their family member was the perpetrator of another loss. And so it can be tricky and complicated to untangle and to separate the feelings of just losing your family member and the consequences of what they did. And so the process of going through that can be truly, in fact, lifelong but hopefully, initially, grief therapy can help to make sense of all of the challenges that might make this process complicated. Grief is what we talk about, as well as dealing with the justice system and victims' rights. And there's quite a bit that happens here. Sounds really complicated and like there's so many layers to it. And that's why I think it's really remarkable what Sarah has been able to do, putting together her own grief group for survivors of murder-suicide and the actions she's taken. I think it's pretty remarkable. So we'll be sure to share information about what she's doing with her audience. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Blatton, for sharing your expertise with us. And we look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Not Talk About It, a podcast dedicated to normalizing discussions of trauma. Tell us what topic you'd like us to not talk about next. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at hello, let's not talk about it.com. And duh, we'll keep your name and email confidential. Want to help us break the silence and normalize talking about trauma? You can. Here's how. Like, share, and follow us on social. Share your feedback using the hashtag unshush. Subscribe, rate, and review our podcast so others can discover us too. That's all for the Let's Not Talk About It team. We'll see you again next Wednesday with a new episode of the show. Here's something a lot of people don't talk about. You've got what it takes to survive and thrive. Keep up the good work. We believe in you. And let's talk about it.